Ahoy there, welcome to the second episode of the Bible Pirate Podcast with Stories Beyond the Horizon. My name's Matt Valor, I'm bringing you this podcast from a shed in the heart of Britain's pirate country. Thanks so much to all those who got in touch after last week's episode, our first ever episode. I was really overwhelmed, to be honest, by all the feedback from all over the world, people saying really nice things, so that was really encouraging, and uh, I'm hoping to do this every week. Um, The structure that I'm going for is to follow the narrative arc of the Bible. So we'll begin in Genesis, uh, but we're not necessarily going to do the Bible in the order that you'd normally find the books in, but we'll move that order so that it follows the overall storyline. Because there is a unfolding storyline that kind of tracks as a historical narrative, even though there's lots of other plots and disagreements and poetry and whatnot that responds to that storyline so hopefully that gives the narrative arc a bit more shape and uh, makes it easier to follow Uh, we'll intersperse those with interviews with different people uh, as we go along people who have come up with interesting alternative unusual interpretations of biblical texts Uh, but overall the structure will be this narrative arc To start with, we're going to begin in Genesis, right at the beginning, in what I call the prologue, which is chapters 1 through 11. Uh, They're very, very famous stories, and I'm actually going to carve those up into much smaller pieces than we deal with any other parts of the Bible. Uh, So we'll probably do four or five episodes just on those first 11 chapters because they've been so unbelievably influential. But once we're beyond that, you know, we'll deal with the whole rest of Genesis, probably in two episodes, Exodus in two episodes and so on. So this week we're looking at Genesis chapter one, just the very first chapter, which, as you probably know, is the creation story, or at least one of the creation stories, because there are two, uh, even just at the start of Genesis, uh, let alone elsewhere in the Bible. I've produced my own translation I'm certainly not promising to do this every week because uh, I've no idea if I could actually manage that. And when I say a translation, I'm not a scholar of ancient Hebrew or Greek. Uh, I'm going from English to English, informed by knowledge of uh, what people who do know ancient Hebrew or Greek may have said about it, but I've certainly not read everything, and informed by a desire to try and create a a way of reading the text in English that preserves some of the force of what might have been there for its early listeners, as well as trying to preserve the otherness of a text that actually comes from a completely different time and place. We talked about that last week. It's the whole idea behind the different horizon. Uh, And so I'm I'm kind of responding to all of those uh, different Uh, forces of meaning uh, and coming up with something that is uh, entirely the Bible pirate unauthorized version. So here goes. In the beginning, when Elohim created the heavens and the earth, there was vast emptiness within the world. The deep wore darkness like a shroud, and Elohim breathed out onto the face of the waters. Elohim spoke, light. And there was. It was good. And Elohim split the light from the darkness. The light was day and the darkness night. So there was evening and then morning 
the first day. Dome! And up from the waters it rose, and Elohim split the clouds from the seas. The dome was sky. There was evening and then morning, the second day. Land! And the great waters rushed together, and Elohim split the land from the waters. The land was earth, and the waters seas. It was good. Plants! And the earth grew green with vegetation and ripe with fruit. The plants bore seeds. It was good. There was evening and then morning the third day. Seasons! And the dome was full of lights, and Elohim split the day from the night. The greater light ruled the day, and the lesser light the night. There was evening, and then morning the fourth day. Creatures of the sea, birds of the sky! And the waters swarmed, and flocks filled the air. Elohim made the great sea dragons, and every sea creature, and every winged bird. It was good. Multiply, fill the waters and the earth. There was evening and then morning, the fifth day. Creatures of the earth! And Elohim made all the wild animals and the cattle and the creeping things. It was good. Adam, the earth creatures, made in our image, with rule over the fish, the birds, the cattle, all the wild animals and every creeping thing. So Elohim created Adam in their image. Male and female, they created them. Elohim spoke. Multiply, fill the earth and tame it. Rule over the fish and the birds, over every living thing. Look around. We have given you every plant with seed and every tree with fruit. These are your food. And to every animal, bird and insect, everything with breath, we have given you every green plant for food. And so it was. Elohim saw everything they had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and then morning, the sixth day. And so the heavens and the earth were finished, and everything in them. On the seventh day, Elohim rested from the work, and so made the seventh day sacred. This is how the heavens and the earth were born. So let me say a few things about the translation to begin with. Firstly, the name Elohim. I didn't use the word God because I don't think in our current contemporary context that's a particularly good translation. A better translation is, as George Martin uh, uses in the Game of Thrones stories, gods. So often characters in Game of Thrones will shout, oh, gods be good. Well, that's actually more similar to the idea of Elohim. Elohim is a name that comes from the Canaanite pantheon of gods, where El is the chief god and the Elohim are the gods. In Israelite religion, Elohim takes on a, a proper name. So it becomes, it is a plural word, it's like gods. That's obviously incredibly complicated to translate and we have to get into this story to really appreciate how it might mean, how it might have meant at various points in its use over centuries and how we might make it meaningful in any way 
today. So I've used a proper name, Elohim, but whenever I use a pronoun, he or she or his or hers, I just say they or theirs or them uh, because it's a plural name. Now, obviously, straight off, that creates theological confusion for uh, texts that have been part of a monotheistic religion for millennia. And I think it is a question that I just will leave there in the text. Gods in Genesis 1 are plural. So a second translation conundrum in Genesis 1 is actually the very first sentence. It's in fact even the very first word, which apparently is to do with the very first letter of that word and how you translate what we have known as in the beginning. Because it can be translated in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but it can also be translated when God created the heavens and the earth. From that confusion, there are two radically different views of the creation. One is that there was a formless void with darkness and deep waters, and within that, God creates the world, or the gods create the world. But the other which is the view that you normally have if you take the line in the beginning. It's translated, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so the implication is that God created the heavens and the earth, and then there was this formless void with darkness over the deep, and so then all the other stuff happens. So one of those views is creation out of nothing, It's a famous Latin phrase, creation ex nihilo. And the other is creation out of something. There is already waters, and from those waters comes the creation. Now, the reason that matters is not just a technical academic point. It's to do with our idea of origins. Not so much the idea of where did the world actually come from, We obviously live in a world now where much of the origins of our species and indeed of our galaxy have been explained in considerable detail by both physical and natural sciences. But that doesn't tell us the story of where we come from, which is why these kind of creation stories are important. I mean, it might tell us scientifically where we come from, and that is a value, and of course that radically reshaped the way that humankind has imagined our, our, literally our space in the world, you know, how we are in relation to the sun, to the moon, the stars, uh, the absolute vastness of our experience compared to how the ancient early listeners of this poem imagined a dome that came from the seas and created the sky and then everything is happening on a flat earth with a dome overhead and all the lights in the sky are in the dome i mean the smallness of that world compared to the vastness of space that we now inhabit and yet even with that scientific knowledge at our disposal we still of course are searching for stories that make sense of where we've come from. Stories that can help locate us in the world and stories that we might want to tell about a god or gods or some powers that have shaped the environment that we find ourselves in, that have shaped the structures of society that we have to live within. These are all part of the reason we have creation narratives 
the founding mythologies of our nations, of our communities, of our ethnicities. These are very, very complex stories with many, many layers, but they matter perhaps more than anything else to us. So back to this particular creation story in Genesis chapter 1. It comes from a place in history, the story of the Israelite people. And biblical scholars, while of course they don't all agree, generally think that this story is one of the later creation stories to be written within the Bible. And it comes from a time where the Israelite people have been subjected to exile by empires. Firstly, the Assyrian Empire exiled the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th century BC. And then around a couple of hundred years later, the Babylonian Empire exiled the southern kingdom of Judah, took its leaders to Babylon, and their descendants came back to lead the newly formed Persian state of Yehud, what we know as Judea, uh, around 70 or so years after that. And that's important because... Most of the scriptures come together, and particularly this part of Genesis, during or after that Babylonian exile, and it's influenced by the people who experienced that. Now, in Canaan, there are Canaanite myths, and in Babylon, there are Babylonian myths, and those are the intellectual, the worldview, the religious environment in which the people who experienced exile lived and breathed and understood themselves to be making meaning in the world. Now in Canaan, the chief god El was going to give a special recognition to Yam, the god of the wild seas. In the ancient worldview, the seas symbolize chaos and death. So El, the chief god, is going to give this uh, recognition to Yam, the god of the seas. And Baal, the storm god, uh, who's famous from the biblical texts, doesn't like this and rebels and in the end fights Yam, the god of the sea. And they have this epic battle and Baal wins and subdues Yam. I mean, it's a kind of ambiguous victory because uh, Yam basically gets to go nuts for about six months of the year and uh, have wild seas and then the remaining six months Baal is in control and the seas have to be calm. Now in Babylon there's all kinds of other mythologies but they take a very similar form and it's quite possible they came from Ugarit which is where the Canaanite mythologies came from and travelled over to Babylonia. So there's a very famous story called the Enuma Elish which is the Babylonian creation mythology, and it's enacted in ancient Babylon every single year with the deposition and reinstatement of the king. The story is a genealogy of the gods. So to begin with, there are the gods of the waters, Apsu for fresh water, and Tiamat, the goddess of the seas. And they have been there since time immemorial. But in the end, they have children, the gods of silt and land and sun, and so on. So they have Anshar, who has Anu, who has Enki, who has Marduk. And the story goes that after a while, Apsu is just fed up of the noise of these damn kids. They're just making so much newfangled nonsense in the world, and he wants to exterminate them forever. So he makes war upon them. Tiama is very opposed, but she can't stop Apsu. 
Now Enki is full of cunning and comes up with a special curse that he puts upon Apsu, forces him to sleep and builds a house over his waters. But after a while, Tiamat herself also decides to make war on her children. And the gods don't know what to do because of her power. So they send Enki to try and calm her. But Enki is too scared and turns back. They send Anu to rein her in, but he can't do it. And in the end, Anshar remembers his great-grandson, Marduk, this tall god with four eyes and four ears and fire from his mouth. And they call him to the council of the gods and ask him if he will take on the challenge of taming Tiamat. And he agrees, but on one condition, that they make him the supreme chief god. And they agree. What other choice do they have? Now, Tiamat has taken a second husband called Kingu, and he is leading the armies against the gods. And Marduk goes to fight Kingu, but finds him lost and the armies in disarray. And so Marduk faces down Tiamat. And the goddess of the seas whips the seas into a frenzy. But Marduk, who commands the storms, forces that sea into a tempest and drives it into Tiamat's open mouth. And as she spits it out, he fires an arrow down her throat and she is killed and he splits open her belly. And from inside her body, he pulls the waters up to the skies and makes the heavens separating them from the seas. And so the creation is born. The gods all assemble and congratulate Marduk on his great victory and reaffirm their allegiance to him. And Kingu, Tiamat's second husband, is summoned and sentenced to death for treason. And from his blood, uh, Marduk forms humankind. Now, this is the story that everybody knows. The Israelites know it because everybody lives within this grand imperial narrative of the Babylonian Empire. They reenact the story every single year at the new year to reinstate the king and everybody places their allegiance to him as representative of Marduk on the earth. So the creation poem of Elohim speaking out over the waters and calling the creation into being is has to be read in reference to this story of Marduk in the Enuma Elish. And you wonder what were the original tellers of this story trying to do in relation to that well-known tale that they all lived within. All of these stories, the Canaanite mythology, the Babylonian mythology, the Israelite mythology, they are all about forging order out of chaos. The seas are emblematic of chaos in the ancient world. And in each of these stories, the gods create some kind of order. But there is one massive difference between the Israelite story and the Babylonian story, and that is the absence of violence. In the Babylonian story, this war takes place, and it is through the violent defeat of the goddess of the sea that the creation is born and humanity comes into being. In Genesis, Elohim gathers to create, but there is no violence. It's a hopeful story, in fact, and it takes a kind of faith as Elohim looks out upon darkness and simply 
calls light into being, to look upon that darkness and to imagine light, to imagine land, to imagine animals, sea dragons, creeping things, every kind of creature and fruit, to imagine that. Not from nothing, I don't think, but from the the chaos of the sea, from the symbol of the old gods, of those who are there from primordial time, to say that something new in the world can happen and it can be good. Both the Babylonian story and the Israelite story share that idea of the possibility of newness, but the Israelite story can imagine newness without violence. In the Babylonian mythology, the gods are obsessed with stirring the waters of Tiamat's belly, and in the end, Marduk slicing it open with his sword. It's male violence against the female womb of the world. But in the Genesis narrative, it is not the belly of the seas which is the focus, but the face. Darkness is over the face of the deep. Elohim breathes out onto the face of the waters. In the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas, the face symbolizes the radical alterity, the irreducible otherness of being. Levinas is powerful for me in philosophy because he is the one who says, Any idea of individual subjectivity, any way in which we imagine ourselves as an individual has to be done because we can conceive of ourselves in relation to other people. We only imagine ourselves as an individual subject because there are other people from whom we are different. And so any ontology, any idea of being has to take into account our prior ethical relationship to the other. There is no individuality without a prior existence in community. And that powerful idea is symbolized for Levinas in the face because of the depth of the eyes. Even if the features of a face are familiar, it is in the eyes in which there is such depth, such otherness. And so the face symbolizes the radical otherness of being. And here is Elohim, the gods come together, looking out onto the face of chaos, onto the face of death and darkness. And in response to the face of the enemy, in response to the face of that power that they want to tame. Instead, they create. They create newness. And to me, this is the very powerful difference between the ethics of Genesis and the ethics of the Babylonian mythology. The Babylonian mythology makes for war, but the Genesis story makes for peace. But it is not peace at any price. What's really interesting about the Babylonian story is that it tracks a movement from a kind of anarchy through a form of sort of primitive democracy right up to an absolute monarchy. So at the start, the gods are kind of a loose association. You've got Enki, for example, taking his own initiative to defeat Apsu. 
It's a kind of warrior king idea. But there's then an increasing council as the threat grows. And in the end, they decide that democracy is not sufficient to defeat Tiama. Instead, they have to have one single monarch to whom they pledge absolute allegiance. They even have a slogan. This is a straight up ancient Babylonian slogan, safety and obedience. And they pledge that to Marduk. Because he can guarantee their safety, they will give him their obedience. And then what's really interesting is that after Tiamat is slain, Marduk still is the king, but the, the slogan changes from safety and obedience to benefits and obedience. Because now Marduk is the king who guarantees new things. He establishes Babylon as the center of the universe. He makes humankind to take on the menial tasks so that the gods don't have to. He is the one who provides benefits in exchange for absolute loyalty, for total obedience. And so that is the way in which that origin myth, that creation myth of Babylonia translates into the politics of Babylon. But for the Israelite people, the story is different because it isn't the story of an absolute monarch. It isn't the story in which there is total obedience demanded. Instead, because Elohim, the gods, look upon the face of the other, of their enemy, and still create newness, the capacity is there for the earth people, for Adam, to continue to create. The poem describes us as made in the image of Elohim, made in the plural, who look upon the face of the other and create newness in the world. And so as we imagine our politics, our society, influenced by this particular creation story, we imagine a society in which we come together as equals, we come together to look upon the face of those who are most other and still create newness. People are celebrating the festival of the burning of Guy Fawkes at this time of year. It's a story from English history in which a Catholic terrorist is foiled in his plot to blow up a Protestant parliament. And of course, in a Protestant society, the burning of this terrorist in a ritual enacted every year has become a staple of the social order. Perhaps we don't think of it like that so much anymore, but we are constantly dealing with the threat of terrorism and it forms a daily part of our narrative. The thing about terrorism, whether it's Guy Fawkes plot or modern day examples, it's a strategy to introduce chaos to the established order in order to terrorize it so that a different order can be established. There is always a question at the heart of terrorism about what the order of the world should be. What is the creation story that gives rise to the order that currently exists? Why is Guy Fawkes a terrorist but King James legitimate? What is it that makes our stories something we can follow or something we must condemn? The line between those is sometimes more blurred than we would like to imagine because by creating clear black and white stories we can keep the power structures of our day intact. What the Genesis story does for me in this complex swirling of ethical questions is to introduce the coming together of the gods with the terrorist other, the face of chaos, 
the face of death, the enemy, and Elohim breathes out onto that face. You have to be close enough to breathe onto a face. But the story, powerful, complex, unsettling as it is, creates the possibility of something good, even very good, coming from the encounter with the face of the other. Does creation come from nothing, ex nihilo, or does it come from somewhere? For me, the story of Genesis 1 is a creation from somewhere. It is a creation by the gods looking out, breathing onto the face of chaos, the face of the other. And that matters for the way that theology has created this idea of a God, a single monotheistic God who was before all things and speaks everything into being. Genesis 1, at least, for me, doesn't tell that story. That's it for this week's episode. Just before I go, a shout out to the late, great Torquil Jacobson, whose seminal work, The Treasures of Darkness on Mesopotamian Religion, uh, hugely influenced this episode. Uh, if you want to connect, please do at BiblePirate.com or on our Facebook page, the Bible Pirate page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch. We'll see you next time.